Unspoken Issues. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unspoken Issues podcast. We are the one-stop shop for 90s comics discussion. That's right. I said it. Write it down. Put it on a deposit slip and send it to the bank. Tonight, we are going to be talking about a two-parter that happened in some annuals from DC in 1994. These annuals, you guys might remember these, Elseworlds annuals that occurred back around uh, 19, in 1994. This one is the Super 7. And with Elseworlds, you know, we got, we got the potential for some crazy stuff happening in these issues. So I want to step back, though, here real quick, bring on the guests Dean Compton, of course, Unspoken Decade is here. Super 7, we're talking Elseworlds, we're talking 90s comics. This is DC. I'm loving it. I love me some What If, I love me some Elseworlds. Tell me all about what you're thinking here as before we get into this story. Yeah, you know, I'm a big market for Elseworlds and What Ifs as well. You know, this story just always resonated with me. I probably read it... 35, 40 times. I had both parts when I was a kid. Read them to the point the covers came off, and then I just pinned the covers on the wall, you know, so that, like, you know, I could be reminded of it all the time. I mean, I, it's one of my, there's there's nothing like, honestly, innovative about it. I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just very straightforward and very good. Everything is executed incredibly. It touches on every note. If you're a, if you're a DC fan, it's really cool to see the interpretation of these characters. If you're not, it really doesn't matter. Um, they, they give you everything you need to know right off. And yeah, the 1994 uh, Elseworlds, uh, 1994 DC annuals, they were all Elseworlds. I don't think there were many other two-parters, if any other two-parters uh, within within those, but they really hit the gamut here uh, that year with, you know, all those annuals. They gave you so much from like, you know, this great story of uh, alien oppression and the the indomitable human spirit to samurai Batman and <laughs> pirate Batman. So you got all, all that. And then John Burns, what if uh, Superman came here during like, you know, he's on the British side during the Revolutionary War. Oh yeah, War. yeah, it's during the Revolution. Yep. yep yeah. Yep, so I you get so you so you got all of this stuff that, that this year. So I think it was a great idea. I think this was well done on every level. You know, I hadn't read it in like a year, and if I haven't read it in a while, it always brings me to tears. It did when I was young. It still does, and uh, I'm I'm really excited to talk more about it. You know, you know. Um, I will say before we get started, though, it's funny that it's called the Super Seven. Because Super Seven now is like a toy company, and they, uh, you know, make 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 a bunch of cool shit. They should, oh really? They should sponsor. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. make the reaction figures. Oh okay. Oh, I didn't know that. I know the reaction figures for sure. I've seen plenty of those on shared throughout my timeline and stuff that I was looking at. Uh, really cool looking. You know, they're basic little tiny figures, but they look all Star you know. Wars figures, you know, right. for the most part from the eighties. You know, five points of articulation. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but yeah, it's funny that you know. Then, like, now when you say Super 7, has an entirely different connotation. <laughs> well, Derry, you're here, buddy. You you said, are we doing the Super 7 story? Oh, man, am I so down. So, yeah, you know, tell me a little bit about it. You ready to talk some Super 7 tonight? I am absolutely ready to talk about Super 7. I love this story. Full stop. I cannot recommend this story enough. I think it is one of the best stories DC did during the 90s. It uses the Elseworlds format to its fullest potential it says all you need to know about these characters are their names and what you brought to the table don't worry about the details we're going to tell you a great great story i wish this were perpetually in print like watchmen i wish i could just hand it to people because i love it it makes great use 
of limited space. I mean, these are just two annuals, but you get not only a complete story for all the characters, but you get some phenomenal uh, character moments, which shouldn't be a surprise because this was written by Carl Kiesel, who did some of my favorite comics from the 90s, especially from DC. And then the other thing, which I mentioned to you guys before we started recording, but obviously the Super 7 comes from The Seven Samurai, which is a famous Japanese movie from the 1950s. It also happens to be one of my favorite movies of all time. So I went into this thinking, well, there's no way it's going to be, you know, as good as this cinematic classic. And while it's not, it is still incredible. And it's very much inspired uh, by the narrative of that movie. And there are a couple of scenes that Kiesel seems to take directly from the the movie to great effect. Uh, It's really, it's more than an homage. It uses the narrative and the story and that idea of almost class warfare uh, to tell a great adventure story. So yeah, I, I cannot recommend these two issues enough. Yeah. I've never seen the movie. When you mentioned it though, I was wondering if you would, you know, give me a description of what it was like and that's perfect. I'm glad you did. Um, yeah. I'd it, never seen it either. I had no idea this was based on anything. I just thought it was, thought it was a way for Kiesel to showcase Superboy, which I believe he co-created Superboy and wrote Superboy forever. And then later Superboy and the Ravers. So I just thought this was a way for him to, you know, showcase that character, which he does a great job of, you know, and I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way, you know, but like, uh, but that's what I thought it was. Hey, here's a great story. Great way to get him over great in, a, in an avenue where like things can happen that can't happen in a straight DCU comic. Again, I'm really happy that you guys enjoyed this and hadn't seen the movie because that means that I'm not a crazy person. Well, I may be a crazy person, but not for this in particular. Yeah, moment. I was going to say you are, but this is not why <laughs> the, uh, you know, one of the reasons that the movie is still so well regarded so many years later uh, is because people have seen it and they've taken things from it. And a lot of times they've taken the wrong things from it, but it still ends up working. What I mean by that is, you know, the movie focuses on seven down on their luck, basically warriors, uh, and they have to come together for one great battle. But the whole point of the movie is showing you why these people are willing to come together, how proud they are, how much had to go wrong for them to be in that in the first place, uh, and how much of their situation is derived both from the people who've asked for protection and for the people who are attacking them. Uh, It's very much a social commentary. That's why I think it was so successful in Japan. And then when it got out of Japan, it was like, hey, do you guys want to see samurai kill bandits in the rain with swords for three hours? <laughs> you do? Well, then please show up and watch this uh, black and white movie. And then, of course, you know, there were a lot of remakes and, uh, you know, any story, really, including the Justice League that has seven characters in it, probably features some version of someone going and, and assembling the band for the first time, you know, getting all the characters together, seeing how the relationships interplay and uh, seeing how everything balances out. So uh, again, it's, it's foundational. Um, and the way I discovered it is the, it was written and directed and basically made by Akira Kurosawa, who also made the Hidden Fortress, who made a bunch of other movies, which all of which went into inspiring Star Wars. So ah. I am not a cinemaphile. I'm a big Star Wars fan. And then I found this stuff and I love it. So if, if, right. if you liked any of this stuff, if you've ever liked Star Wars and never heard of Kira Kurosawa, go watch this movie. It's three hours well spent. If you've tuned into this program and do not know what an Elseworlds comic is, Elseworlds. In Elseworlds, heroes are taken from their usual settings and put into strange times and places. Some that have existed or might have existed, and others that can't, couldn't, or shouldn't exist. This 
is one of them. All right, there it is. Yeah, so that's the thing too. Elseworlds, it's funny because like it starts with Gotham by Gaslight. Retroactively, at the time they didn't they didn't have this brand, but later they would do you know they would retroactively say that was the first one. It was really hot. There's a lot of stuff. Batman, Red Rain, uh, the computer uh, generated digital justice. Robin 3000, uh, you know, they, they a lot of the first few were Batman, were just straight up Batman. When they did the whole annuals thing, people thought that they were overexposing it to the point where uh, I can't remember what issue it is. I think it's back issue, the magazine that Tomorrow's puts out, number 107 or 108. And like they focused on like what ifs and Earth X and Elseworlds. And this guy was like, these annuals were a waste of time and overexposed the brand. They didn't do anything good. But I defy you to like two things. Number one, read these two issues and tell me that this somehow overexposed it wasn't good. Number two, like, what do you, I don't even know what you're talking about, right. to be honest. Like, right. you're trying to sell comic books and this will sell comic books. He's, he, he talks to it, he's like, it used to mean something. Bro, it was Batman fighting Jack the Ripper. It didn't mean, I mean, it was a good story, but like, it wasn't like these were like the pinnacles or the foundations of what DC was built on. It was like, goddamn, what if Bruce Wayne got the Green Lantern ring? That's it. That's it. You know, I mean, so I don't know. It's weird how I don't feel like what if is treated that way. But it's weird. He is not the only person that I've heard this sentiment from that, like, Elseworld shouldn't be overexposed. Really? Wow. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm a Marvel guy. Maybe it's something that DC's more, DC people are more concerned I, with. I don't know. I I'd read 100 fucking Punisher titles a month as long as they were good. And this isn't a concept that just went away and was overexposed and nobody liked it. You know, this is something that people loved and are still applying today and making great stories. You know, we had a what if Disney Plus series. I, I'd, I'd love to understand why in the world this guy thought it was uh, overexposed for you know, some reason I, at that point. I think I think it's important to understand two things. You know, one, Elseworlds is just a post-Christ version of what used to be called an imaginary story. Right. Yeah. You know, pre-crisis or even D just the infinite earth themselves. Yeah, absolutely. DC used to do this incredibly well. You know, if they had a really good story and they didn't want to uh, bother again, not that they had a lot of ongoing stories for the longest period of time. I mean, you know, the Trinity was able to stay in print because every month for the most part, things got reset back to normal, which is fine. That's what the market wanted back then. But once they started really getting into it, you know, they had no problem telling imaginary stories and those were really, really good. Because you could, just like in Elseworld, you could say, well, listen, this month, do whatever you want. And at the end of the story, it's going to turn out Jimmy Olsen's waking from a dream and he might tell someone he might not. And then the other thing is that I think for the Elseworlds, so many of them in the early 90s were so good. You know, they were just, they yeah. were really, really good. There was a high quality of stuff. I know I came to it in 1996 via Kingdom Come, and that's mm. still one of my favorite comics of all time. Um, and it having the Elseworlds brand on it, I feel like people our age got very protective of that brand. And it's saying, listen, if you're not going to hit the highs of Mignola drawn Batman and Alex Ross drawn Superman and Captain The Golden Marvel, Age with James Robinson and Paul Smith. Oh, the best uh, Justice Howard Jenkins' uh, Secret Society of Superheroes in 2000, which is, I think, the most overlooked Elseworlds of them all like it is it is great and just people don't get there for some reason yeah there was a there was a great one later on I don't even know if it carried the Elseworlds title but um 
uh, JLA Destiny by John Arcudi, which I love. I don't know why, but I love it. But yeah, I, I think part of the problem is it was a victim of its own success. So many of those early Elseworlds. I mean, if you're starting off with Mignola drawing steampunk Batman, you really can go downhill. So, you know, when you get to the point where Elseworlds maybe is being thrown on books that you know like a what if it's like well we're just we're just trying this out we're not saying it's still going to be in print in 20 years we're trying it out people are like oh that shouldn't have been an elseworlds that should have been something else as opposed to across the street where you know when i was reading month-to-month comics there was always what if some were good some were bad most were just there you know there wasn't Mm -hmm. necessarily a mark of quality it just meant you know weird stuff's going to happen and the the toys aren't going to be put back in the box at the end Right. And to your point, Jesse, too, I mean, look at this. Like now, you have the Flash movie that's coming out. You have the Flash TV show. You will have cartoons that have the Flash in them, and everybody can tell the difference. And, like, it's wild to think that once upon a time, like, this guy said it was overexposed. That's why, sort of why DC did the crisis. They thought people were too stupid to know that, like, there were alternate realities. And now, like, things are, like, tripled down. There's got to be, like, six versions of Spider-Man right now. Right, That, man. like, you could go look at at any time, counting the comic book, you know. And, you know, I mean... It, it, I think, I think, yeah, it's wild to think this stuff would ever be overexposed, especially too with what Gary said. Half of the classic Silver Age Superman stories are imaginary. You know, arguably the greatest Superman story of the 1980s, Alan Moore's, you know, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow is an imaginary story right off the top. So, yeah, it's with, I, I don't understand that guy's point of view either, but you know, but I do want to say after bagging on that guy a lot, Michael Yuri does a great job. Back issue is a great magazine. I don't want to come across like I'm bagging on the, the magazine. I get it every time it comes out, eight times a year. You should subscribe. Like that's a free plug. He didn't pay me anything to do it. He's been very nice to me though. <laughs> well, hey, these two issues. It looks like it's really close to 120, uh, 120 pages. Great story. Let's talk about the first one here. So here we go. Uh, like you said, written by Carl Kiesel, penciled by Brock L. War, Kurt A. Schultz on inks, Glenn Whitmore colors, Albert de Guzman on letters. And this first issue happened, uh, this is Adventures of Superman Annual Number 6, title of the story, Part 1, The Longest Night, The Horde Has Arrived. Their goal is that of dominating the universe, and now they look to conquer the Earth. Terrorizing the world, they decree that civilians will lose their lives if any metahumans join in any resistance. Valiant battles were fought and scores of human lives were lost. And as the casualties mount, humanity begins to betray their superheroes in order to fall in line with the Horde and save their own lives. Many heroes begin to leave the Earth as there seems to be nothing left to protect. One last gasp to turn the tide of war was headed by Lex Luthor. However, it was stifled as Lex and his team were killed. That was nine years ago. Now all hope appears to be lost, save a small uprising being cobbled together by Jimmy Olsen, who happens to be conspiring with counselor Lana Lang. Jimmy hu- Nick Fury Olsen. He, does, he has <laughs> an eye patch now. He does have an eye patch. Uh, he is conspiring with counselor Lana Lang, a human liaison trusted by the Horde. Lana tells Jimmy she knows where Superman is, which could be a key factor in defeating the Horde, obviously. Believing Lois Lane to have been killed in a Horde-led attack, Clark Kent has been working as a slave, much like the rest of humanity, bereft of hope. Jimmy finds him with news that Lois may not actually be dead. Reinvigorated Superman escapes the horde with compound with Jimmy, and the two regroup looking to find other heroes that may help their cause. Wonder Woman soon shows up, and the trio goes to find Batman in Texas, of all places. I assume, much like Coast City, a lot of the cities, Gotham City, 
Metropolis have been destroyed. In fact, we see a lot of stuff in Metropolis. It's pretty much gone. They also stopped by what used to be Coast City to talk to Green Lantern and run into a young, powerful resistance fighter that has taken the name of Superboy. The team believes Superboy to be too brash, posing more of a danger than a help. So the team refuses to allow him to join in on the fight. Their next stop is to find Wally West, who lost his leg in an attack by a mob of angry people and remains traumatized. However, his spirit is not yet completely broken, and he also agrees to join them. The heroes show up at a horde facility that has been demolished. The cause? Superboy. They all agree Superboy can join them, but mainly so they can keep an eye on him. Now the team head to a resistance base in Metropolis to rally the fighters there, where they are greeted by a new hero, in quotes, who wishes to join them. Metal X. The kryptonite-powered body of Metallo with Lex Luthor's undamaged brain controlling it. The Super 7 now aims to take the fight to the Horde. There you go. That is our synopsis of part one of this two-part series. Every page is great, and the five or six people that are still working at DC should crack this one open and read it. Because uh, if Discovery is going to sell you guys off for parts, at least go out fighting. Yeah, Um, did you guys hear those noises? Shots fired. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I feel very bad for DC because as I, I, while I am a, a Marvel zombie uh, in every definition of that word, most of what I would consider my Desert Island comics came from, from Vertigo or DC in the 90s. So I, I mourn, uh, but things, things are going to get rough over there. Anyway, this comic is great. Uh, and from the beginning of, of the issue, the, the I, I wanted to mention real quick the art. So we were talking about this before we started, but... I love the art in this issue, and I don't recognize this artist's name from anything else. And what little uh, research I was able to muster didn't point me in the direction of any other comic. So if anyone is le- if anyone is reading this and knows what else Brock uh, or has done, please let me know because uh, I, I really enjoyed this. The art felt very John McRae ish, the artist of uh, Hitman and a variety of other comics from this period of time, which is one of the highest compliments I can give a person. So I, again, I just kind of knocked it out of the park. The opening spread of Superman and what remains of the Justice League fighting the Horde was was great. Uh, to Dean's point earlier, this is one of those things where I just would have hung up on the wall. You know, I don't even care if I was tearing it out of a comic. This issue is great because it does the number one thing that an Elseworlds story can do. It shows you how Superman loses, right? You, you know Superman's going to come back eventually and do what he can to protect everyone. That is what he does. That is what defines him more than anything else. But Elseworlds says, okay, yeah, but what if he has a bad day? A real bad day. And how do you hurt Superman? You hurt the people around him you hurt the people who have been entrusted to him because they are vulnerable and the horde have a very great gimmick you you know we don't spend a lot of time and this is something that was taken from the the film as well you don't spend a lot of time with the villains uh not that they're not interesting not that they're not dangerous but they're they're not the point they're not the antagonists here the the antagonists are the misery that's been inflicted and the conflict between the the heroes and the people who are scared but they want to protect them nonetheless and the horde's great gimmick is just we outnumber you there are a million alien ships to every person you have that can punch an alien ship and if you know you guys don't back down 
we're going to kill civilians because we don't care. We're not here for civilians. We're going to kill as many of them as it takes. One of our previous episodes was Mars Attacks, and it was a very similar gimmick where it was, well, we have a very big fleet of starships, and we're here, and we want as many resources as possible, but we have to take out the superhumans first. This has a very similar premise, except they go a step further and says, we're going to wipe out as many people as we can every single time we see someone with a cape or who can fly or can shoot energy beams, whatever it is. Uh, and obviously, you know, if this were an incontinuity crossover, you'd find a way around that. But here, it's a great gimmick. You have to skip ahead a couple of decades and you get this beautiful premise of the humans are afraid of the superhumans because every time they show up, 10,000 people die. And yeah. I, I just one of those great gimmicks that I think you could tell a hundred stories about. Watching the heroes leave because you're just like... What's left? You know, we, we are here to protect these people. They don't want our protection anymore. They do not want us here. And it'd probably be better if we just left anyway, because that is the only way we can protect them and make sure that they live is so we aren't around. Well, also, I mean, there's a certain amount of self-preservation involved. One of the things you see is like, you know, the people crucify Green Arrow. A government sends, you know, attack helicopters after Hawkman and Hawkwoman and blow them away. Not that these heroes, you know, are like, oh, well, there's going to be trouble. I guess I won't deal with it. But like, okay, so there's a bunch of people who don't want me around. They're going to be, they're going to be terrible. Like they cripple Wally West. Right. But also... Now the government's going to also try and kill me. I'm going to go figure out where, you know, something else that I can do where I can help more surreptitiously or just go somewhere else for a little bit. Right. Although I got to say, I don't know where he went, but I wish Captain Marvel would have showed back up. He He's holding his own. You don't see what happens to him. I bet that he's one of the metas that, you know, would show up later in this continuity. I'm not saying that I've got a 50 page script for Captain Marvel coming in a sequel uh, that is based on Yojimbo, another Akira Kurosawa movie. But I'm also not saying that I have that in case, again, <laughs> anyone who works at DC has listened this far. Both of them. <laughs> Listen, Marie Javins works very, very, very hard. I wish you she had to, because only, like I said, only like two or four people work there. So you're going to be working real hard. I wish she was given unlimited money. I really do. Anyway. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it definitely feels like Captain Marvel is prominent in a bunch of crowd shots in the beginning of this thing. And it definitely feels like there was a story there about mm. you know, Billy hiding in the crowd. He'd have been 10 right. years older. He'd have been about 17 or something, right as the heroes. You know there's a sequel somewhere of just like, mm, what is Captain Marvel yeah. getting up to now? I feel like, you know, part of the story would be like he's still he's never stopped being Captain Marvel, but he's just a lot more surreptitious about it. Like, I don't want to get exposed. I don't want this stuff, you know, to happen. But yeah, like you feel like there's something there with him. Poor Green Arrow, though. Like he didn't just he doesn't, you know, like for this world, he doesn't even have superpowers. Y'all went too far. <laughs> Crucified with his own arrows. I love Green Arrow. That wasn't right. That wasn't right. Uh, yeah, but yeah. You jump ahead and I and you know, we already did the synopsis, but there is a panel in here that every time I read it, it just gets to me. You know, Superman, for being a character that is 80 years old uh, and an and, and icon in every way you could use that word, doesn't have as many great stories as I wish he did. But here, when Jimmy and Lana come to him and he's like, well, I have to help. And he breaks open and you see that even in the lowest moments of despair, he has kept his costume. Yep. And he says, this is is a job for Superman. And you see this person 
say, you've asked for my help, regardless of all the terrible things that my help has brought to these people that I've dedicated my life to. You're asking for help. I cannot not give it. And he's ready to go. I was standing. I was applauding. I was like, this this is what I want from this character. You find a good way to take the most powerful fictional character ever committed to four color. And you say, how do we get him to believe once again in the mission? This thing knocks it out of the park. It's such a good moment. And it's so 90s, too, because he then puts on a long leather coat. Like, he's not just putting on his old costume. Like, he's changed a little bit. And again, this is two years before Kingdom Come, when Alex Ross would redesign into the black S symbol, the gray in his hair, the kind of more standoffish. You know, this is a Superman that gets down in the muck and says, I have to help people. I Not doing so is killing me more than anything else. And I just... I wanted to make sure that moment was pointed out because I love it so much. You mentioned the crucifixion of Green Arrow. All of those panels are really powerful. Like, you know, Blue Beetle, it looks like, has thrown his costume into the trash and is walking away. Carpal tunnel syndrome, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. (laughs) But that's what I'm talking about with the art. I mean, for, you know, if you know who Blue Beetle is and you know who created him, to have an homage to Amazing Spider-Man 50 right right in the middle. Very nice. Annual, it's like you you know what you're doing. I mean, was that in the script? Was that artistic license? Neither would surprise me because again, both of these guys, oh, just beautiful. High marks. Wow. High marks, everyone involved. Yeah, it looks like the Adam just shrinks. He's like, I'm out. He just shrinks to where he's never going to be uh, you know, in, involved in the uh, I assume real he world. goes and finds another like uh tiny indigenous society like the one he lived with in Sword of the Atom. The, all that's left is humanity, but that's not you know, that's not where things are going to end because Lex gets the, is it the Blackhawks? Oh yeah. Name? It, it, yeah. He gets the oh, Blackhawks yeah. stealth bomber. Yeah. 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 He gets them involved. And of course, unfortunately it gets stomped out and he is, uh, which presumed know, dead. This, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, if you look at that lineup, you know, Slade Wilson, first off, they're like, Oh, they didn't have superpowers. That's Deathstroke. He totally has superpowers. <laughs> um, uh, but then like, you also had, you know, Selena Kyle, Catwoman, Dick Grayson, Nightwing, Jim Harper, The Guardian. There are a few other people that I wish they would have had, like Tim Drake, who could have been, you know, like Robin or uh, Agent Liberty for Gangbuster. Gangbuster, Gangbuster would have been one. And what about yeah. the guy from Madison Square Garden in the oh, Carnage comics? He had a big knife. He had to come right out of there. Gone out there. Stab, stab, stab. You know he's always <laughs> sitting... ready to go. I was ready for that because if you open the second issue, there is graffiti in the background for Pantera, Metallica, oh, yeah. and yeah. Megadeth. I was I was just waiting for the second issue. I was all ready to be the person to mention him this you episode. Were... Nice. Knocked it out of the park. <laughs> Oh man! Nice. I was well, ready. I saw that he was there. He's keeping it alive, baby. He's, that... he's spray paint. He's stabbing guys. You know. Damn I mean, right. I guess it's better that he wasn't on the Black Hawk because he was able to continue to, you know, fight the war <laughs> and and keep Megadeth alive. So way to go. You should keep Megadeth alive. That oh, that Black Hawk scene is great because every really time I, every time I read that, I think, why don't I have? that book there are a hundred terrible comics featuring slade wilson the terminator and not one where he is leading the blackhawks whose origins are we are a private air force that bombs countries that have been conquered by fascists that should be on the stands 
every single week from now until the sun burns out. And if you want to make Slade Wilson the 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 head of the air group, I don't know what you call a bunch of fighters. I I would buy that. A Why is that not being published? Like that's brilliant. That's so good. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I agree, and I think that looked good. And um, honestly, it's one of those things where you get why they're killed, but like you would have liked to have seen more of them later. But it's not going to work if they're around. You know, this is the this is the big moment where everybody's like, oh, we can never do anything. You know, the Superman moment you talked about too, where he's like, I'm sorry, I can't help you. This is a job for Superman. That is usually the first moment when I'm like when I was rereading these. Like that's the first moment here where I tear up. The next one in the first issue is when they go to see Wally West, and Wally West is just like you know he's got metal legs and he's like I'm not fast anymore. And like he's like and they're like I'm sorry, no, we won't ask you to do this. You know what I mean? And so, and then all of a sudden he busts out the ring. And you full page. He's like, I've never ran away from a fight in my life. And I just, oh, I I'm it. starting to tear up now, honestly. That's because, like, this guy really has nothing to offer, like, very little. I mean, I know he, he, he still has fast hand, but, right. like, he doesn't think he can run anymore, you know, and, and he will. He'll run, he'll run one last time, can- you know. And that's just, it's just so beautiful. Like, that moment, it's funny because even the first time I read it, like, you knew he's going to die. At that moment, like, you know, like, it's not going to work out. It's not going to work out for him, but, you know, it's going to work out for everybody because of something he's going to manage to do. And that's that's just such a, that's, that's such a powerful scene for me. You know, this comic means a lot to me, too, because, you know, I got it in 1994. Man, that wasn't a good year. You know, it's about a year after my dad had, had killed himself, which was always, you know, difficult. And I was about to start high school, which was difficult. My uh, my parents, like my mom and my stepdad, like went fucking nuts one day on crystal meth and tried to like beat me up. And I ran away and I stayed with a guy for two weeks, my friend for two weeks. Then they sent the cops after me. They somehow got the cops to believe everything that I was somehow terrible and that they were great. And so like I was just terrible. But you would read something like this and you knew there was hope. You knew that as long as you as long as you were Jimmy Olsen, who honestly is the real legacy of Superman here. He is the real, like, even more so than Superboy, to be honest. Because, like, no matter what, this is a never-ending battle, and he never stopped fighting. And I would I would read this comic in those moments, and I would be like, it's going to work out for me. I'm going to figure out a way, and eventually other people will help me, even if nobody has up until now. And I've been very fortunate. I found those people, and I think by any metric, I have succeeded beyond most people who were dealt the cards that I was dealt. But, and I'm not trying to, you know, bring this into a downer. I'm sure I'll make a joke about cyber force or something in a minute. We'll get this right back up. I don't think you can overestimate the power that this comic would have for somebody who is downtrodden or oppressed. You read these things and you're like, there is hope. We, we, you can make it, but you have to try. And it may cost you. But as long as you can, as long as the battle remains never ending, you will win. Now, my notes for this, epi- uh, for this first issue were just the trauma of all of these characters. Uh, because that's what they're trying to come back from. They're trying to deal with this horrible event. People that they knew died. Wally West suffering from horrible injuries from the people he you know, was swearing to protect. Yeah. They turn on him and destroyed his legs. That's another uh, thing to point out about trauma is like the human race is actually uh, in this in these comics. 
are actually portraying uh, the trauma of like an abuse victim. Because what would happen like growing up, you know, I mean to make this heavy again, but you would seek, you know, I had an older sister and a younger sister and a younger brother. And sometimes you would seek to deflect. You would be like, even people who are trying to protect you, like I might be sticking up for my brother, but that wouldn't matter in a few hours if he's in trouble again and could deflect it to me. You know, mm -hmm. like you're so beaten, you just don't want anything else bad to happen to you. Even ignoring that something good could happen from it, because I think part of the trauma of the heroes is that they could have won. They could have won. If they had just, if everybody would have just stuck by them, it, it would have happened. And sadly, it, you know, it doesn't call it, it arguably cost Green Lantern the most when he lost Coast City. Right. You know, I mean, and in this, and honestly, this Green Lantern, this Hal Jordan, a much better person than the regular DC Universe, right? He Coast City gets destroyed here. He's like, I'm going to take care of the bones and make yeah, sure everyone he just gets takes buried. The regular DC Universe better go get massive cosmic power and kill all the other Green Lanterns. Better <laughs> rewrite reality, motherfucker. So right. anyhow, but like, I, I feel like it's very interesting, like you're saying, as somebody who is a victim of, uh, you know, PTSD and trauma, you're right. There, Everybody here is displaying different kinds of trauma. Yeah, you know, Batman feels betrayed. Uh, the as well left. he should on some level. Right. I, I, I don't the blame The other thing him. about the heroes is trauma. None of them are wrong. They may not be entirely right, but none of them are wrong. Derry, tell me what you thought of Metalex. Metalex, buddy. I've always pronounced it Metalex, but you guys are right. It's probably well, Metalex. I, I, I just went with Metalex as it's like Metalex. Right, right, right. No, and, well, that's also his name. I can't imagine that like he would want his name mispronounced. I just, I wanted to, to tack on to that Green Lantern because that was something that struck me too, that Hal Jordan loses Coast City here. He loses everyone to the point where he is, he, he is burying skeletons and he's doing for lack of a better term, penance, even though he, he didn't necessarily do anything wrong when the heroes discover him. And it's such a great compare and contrast with Emerald Twilight when, again, he would unfortunately have a nervous breakdown, react differently to that trauma, and murder all of his friends. Uh, but again, here it's it's this idea of of, of endurance. And, and to Dean's point, you know, that is incredibly important to defining these characters' arcs because that's kind of what we know about them on page one. We, you know, we know that these characters are used to winning and they do win. And that's kind of what they've uh, been defined by, but when they lose and they lose so bad, they can come back from that. And that is what separates them from many of their peers, uh, both at this, this company and others. And, and you buy it, you know, when you see how uh, on his knees and instead of parallax, he's become, you know, the, the, not the grave digger, but the, the caretaker, you know, the person who's gone out of their way to say, these are still my people. And if I fail to protect them and they turned on me, it doesn't matter. I, I still have to do what I can. And again, when, when he brings out the, the lantern and he gives the oath and he just mm, god damn it yeah, like why why is this comic from 1994 so much better at this than, than like dc movies like why i don't understand it like this oh anyway i thought that was a great great scene and and every time i got to read a jeff johns comic i go back to this and i think you know what this was done in like six pages it took you 60 issues and it wasn't as powerful but the other thing I want to talk about before I get to Metal X, because uh, I don't know if I'll have an opportunity to bring it up later, the scene in this issue where Superboy appears as the seventh member, or I guess in this case, the sixth member, uh, is very, very particular. So he sets an alarm off at the Resistance compound, and the uh, compound appears to be abandoned, except for the superheroes who have gathered together. And then suddenly all the resistance people who are all human or all non-superhuman, they 
come running out and they're terrified and, and they don't know what to do. And they see all these people and they think, oh, man, we're going to lose. It's, it's not up to us. And then Superboy comes in and says, I'm the one who sounded the alarm. I'm the one who made you confront this because I, I know what you're going through and I know what they're going through. But I want to win and I want to make sure that everyone's up front with what they're afraid of and uh, how bad this is really going to be. That is taken almost verbatim from Seven Samurai. Uh, The Superboy character in Seven Samurai is called Kikachio, and he is portrayed by Toshiro Mifun, who is arguably the most famous Japanese movie actor. He he was Yojimbo. He was in a variety of other films. Uh, If you have no idea what I'm talking about, please just Google him. You're going to have a great day. Uh, But anyway, he plays Kikachio, who is the best character in the movie. And he does the same thing. And the whole gimmick in the original movie, I guess spoilers for a movie from the 50s, is that he is never clear on whether or not he actually is a samurai. He has the scrolls, he has the sword, he can fight. But the whole point of being a samurai is that it, it's a title. It's like being a lord or a lady, you know, someone... The knight, emperor's, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Someone's got to like, tell... swear fealty to, like, a shogun or something. It's, it's a I know political... just enough about it to be dangerous. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I'm not an expert on Japanese history. I know what I know from anime. But it's, it's, a, it's a political thing is what I'm getting at. So right. it's something that has to be given to you because you did something right to someone who was important, who had wealth, who had land, who had you know all the other things that politics is based on. And it's never made clear whether or not this guy is telling the truth. But nonetheless, he's completely dedicated to the cause. So he lives in both worlds. He, he, is, you know, he, he is a man of two worlds. And it's the same thing here with Superboy. You know, they never really detail in these two issues his origin as as we know it in the core DC universe, Cadmus, the cloning, all that other stuff. Right. We just know that he was raised in this environment where the horde are in control and people are afraid. But as far as anyone else is concerned, he wants to be Superman. So he is also a man of two worlds. And the fact that he is the one to do that and the fact that Kiesel adapted that scene, oh, I love this comic. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, oh. I really do. But Metalex, I thought was great because even if it is Australian chin-strapped, cloned ginger Lex Luthor of the early 90s, no one's favorite version of a great, great character. He he is on fire here because I love the idea that an alien armada, and again, it's it's not one race. They're called the Horde because they are multiple races, whatever, whatever they feel like drawing in the different scenes, uh, are able to take Lex out. And Lex says, no, I, I had a backup plan for this. And then he dumps his mind, the, the greatest mind in the DC universe, other than possibly Dr. Savannah, into a robot powered by kryptonite just so he can come back and make Superman have to fight alongside of him. It's brilliant. And, and it's just one of it's one of those things that I would read every week going forward because again, it's it's the classic Luthor Brainiac team up. It's something you've seen before, but it's done in a completely new way and it continues to be I feel like you're selling Mr. Terrific short. Oh, oh, sorry. I, I apologize. Know. I love Michael Holt. Uh, I love yeah. every comic with him. Like he yeah. might be the number one. You know, it's it's probably one of those three for sure. You know, I don't know. I guess I guess Will Magnus is probably so you know. No. Yeah. You could make the metal men. Come on. Listen, if I could make the metal men, I would be busy doing other things besides <laughs> this podcast. Like, I, I, I agree, though. Like I, gold. I would be like, ha ha, sorry, buddy. <laughs> Let me point something out, too, that like I think about every time I read this comic book. Unlike everybody else in the Super 7, Hal Jordan is part of a greater thing. What happened to the rest of Sector 2814 while he decided not to be Green Lantern? Yeah. We can assume the Green Lantern Corps is still around because em- Emerald Twilight doesn't happen. 
Like we can assume that, like you know, what like his ring still works, so the power battery on Owen is still going. Did they just grant him like administrative leave? What happened to the rest of Sector Two Eight One Four? Is John Stewart and Guy Gardner out there taking care of it? It's just an interesting question. I'm not saying it's a it's not a plot hole. It's just an interesting question. No, no, no. But that, but I actually that that's a very good point. I actually think I have an answer for that because if you Uh-oh. think it, if you think it through, the origin of the rivalry between Hal Jordan and Sinestro is I, I think if I'm understanding this correctly, is how goes to Korrigar, where Sinestro is from, and he sees that it's basically a, a fascist I'll say utopia, right. but it's not really. It, um, it's a lot like Latveria, but exactly, exactly, exactly. No one goes to bed hungry as long as they do exactly what they're told and they don't speak out and they don't even think the wrong way. Fine, great, good. Right. But I think it's it's the same thing where it's like we are the guardians of the universe, but we are absolutely not omnipotent. Uh and a sector could be a planet, could be a system, could be a galaxy. You know, it all depends on the concentration of intelligent life. And I think right. in most cases, the Guardians don't know what the heck is going on, you know? So <laughs> Sinestro was able to take over his sector, make it run like a Swiss watch. And what do the Guardians say? They say, you're really good at that. You should teach everyone else. Listen, we got this guy from this planet. They don't even have interstellar travel. They're savages, but the ring chose him. You need to take him under your ring uh wing excuse me your 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 friend uh was this is mentor whatever um you know play around with it so i I love the idea that one of the guardians is like hey we haven't heard from 2814 in 10 years and they're like well that's that's weird oh he was the savage right i don't worry he's gonna he's probably gonna die any day they got a lifespan of like three weeks so don't worry about it the ring will find someone else maybe a martian i hear one of them still around we'll get back on track don't don't worry about it we got more hate crimes to commit i think there's a sixth inversion we can get to uh over yes. with uh, the red lanterns so well the guardians are fascists that's all i'm saying people no one elected them really? guardians are fascists that's all i'm saying i mean there's an argument there <laughs> i think though that would that and that would track with me normally if like we assume everything in the dc universe went about this way until this horde showed up hal jordan was the greatest green lantern of them all they would have to wonder what happened to it they would have to be like where's this guy who we thought was a savage but who rose to great heights but again i again like i said it's not necessarily a plot hole for all we know john stewart and guy gardner are taking care of it and they're like hey leave hal alone for a while he's busy right. you know yeah. for all we know like you said they don't care they're just like well i guess he's dead we'll get the new one soon and they lose track of time because they're you know quasi omnipotent and you know quasi immortal you know so and again i don't want somebody to listen to this and be like oh that is a plot hole it's not it's just a question no it doesn't no, have to no, be addressed no. here good question i mean I, I i always uh i always get in fights with people about that because everyone's like well this is a plot hole this is a plot hole it's like no it's not you have a finite number of pages and you have to tell the right. best possible story and if you assume that everyone who's going to read this has also like the three of us read most of the other comics that are coming out then that's a very small population you know you just you have to you know if this was someone's first comic this would be great i think because you 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 see all these heroes at their best at at their lowest but also at their best and then you'd be like oh man i i kind of want to see what else is going on so i i thought it was a great house story i i actually would you know we were talking before about how captain marvel shows up and disappears i if anyone wants to revisit this time period and show us what john stewart was up to i can only imagine because that guy's great 
I think that people have lost track too because you hear a lot about plot holes. But in this case, I feel like what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to fill in your blanks. If there's part of this story, like what happened to the Martian Manhunter? You just make it up that like they leave that part open to you. And to me, that's always been part of the beauty of comic books in a way that like novels uh, and movies don't necessarily get across sometimes because they'll fill in all the blanks, you know, partly for necessity. You don't want to have any dead space in either of those mediums in comic books. They can just allude to something that might have happened. And then you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be 12 years old again, up uh, an hour past your fucking bedtime, drinking Sunny Delight and reading this and thinking about all the things it could possibly have, all the things that like Robin could possibly be doing here. Yeah. The late, great Stan Lee said it best. You have a problem with something we put out? You tell us how you would fix it. And if it's good, I'll send you an empty envelope. It'll change your life, kid. <laughs> I, will give you, I will give you a no prize for doing my work for me. And how many of those people who mailed in letters to stand the man and got a no prize work in comics today? I mean, it's exactly what you're saying. One of the best things about the modern superhero story is that it requires participation and it, it begs you to have an imagination and they're not plot holes because you're limited in the amount of space and uh, you're limited by by the great art they're they're questions and the questions you ask right. yourself and if you can come up with a great idea and it drives you to write that story down then it's canon somewhere man they're all imaginary stories alan moore <laughs> said that whether or not they get written down and whether or not they get published they still exist somewhere I wanted to real quick just toss this out here because we were talking about the art. And I, I mean, I know you probably looked at it there, Derry, doing some research, trying to figure out. I go to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. I click on Brock L. Lahore's name. Three comics show up. There's four entries, but three comics. Superman, Adventures of Superman, Annual 6, which we're looking at. Prototype number 13 and Mantra number 20. That's it. Oh, the Ultraverse. Okay. Yeah, all within... All right. We're talking June of 94, which is this comic. And then the last comic he does, Mantra number 20, is April of 95. And that's it. It's ama uh, so, you know, this is competent art. This is not horrible. I don't know why, no. you know, I don't understand why he stopped. Maybe he just went in some other field or whatever. But, yeah, you're right. There isn't hardly anything out there on him. Well, I so. mean, you know, the industry was constricting. And it was constricting exponentially at the time. And maybe okay. there just wasn't work for him. You know, I mean, like, what's the work he does at DC? It's an annual. Yeah, you know, right. I mean, which is generally yeah. stuff you got to get some extra people in. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he got a better deal. Maybe he was just helping out a friend. Maybe he never really did comic book was, you know, really wanted to be in comic books. Because there's a the fraternity between artists is really incredible when you start to, like, dive into the history of comic books and, you, you know, the, the relationships they had. Like, every time I'm reading, you know, about this stuff from, I'm reading about this stuff from Charlton now. And I was reading about this stuff from, uh, you know, the 70s, Walt Simonson and Bernie writes in and like three other people would you get together and like hammer out a hammer out a comic in two days because you know jeff jones was behind so all, for all we know this is just a buddy like i couldn't find anything on him either so hmm. you know i hope something tragic didn't happen to him oh that's not what's going on here but yeah same. i didn't find anything but this was this was more than competent work i think it was really good I, it really fit the tone of the story you know important you know the most important when you thing. look at those panels man i mean uh, 
Jerry just went on about how many of those panels spoke to him. And it's hey, me too. Of, me too. Yeah. Right. Now there, and, and, you know, there, there's something else uh, to the art that makes it stick out for me. There, there's a design element too. Uh, this, this does not seem like it's someone's first comic. It, it may be, uh, again, I, I don't know anything about the artist, but it certainly doesn't feel that way. Not only is there a science fiction element uh, with the Horde and, and there's this dystopian, you know, paramilitary stuff going on, but he also draws a beautiful Lana. Every one of the backgrounds is filled in. Everything is, is I, I don't want to say well lit because it's not a movie, but clearly uh, he thought about the the, the lighting and, and all these frames. You know, uh, the, the great scene we were talking about before, this is a job for Superman, takes place in like a prison basement and everything is in deep dark shadows there's none of that sunlight that fuels the man of tomorrow until the last panel and it comes basically from when he's breaking the fourth wall it's like i'm not an art guy i know what looks good to me but i i couldn't tell you why and i certainly couldn't draw anything more complicated than a stick figure but this is great and this just doesn't feel like someone's uh first book it, again it might be and if so they may have just realized that they were too good for this field because to dean's point i mean there's not always a monthly book with a steady income waiting for you and even then i mean we've seen it with the greats this industry isn't kind to you even if you are really really good at your craft it did it burns people out and it doesn't always have a reward at the end. So maybe they were just like, Hey, that's fun. I'm going to go do something else. And, you know, under some pseudonym, they've done great work. Um, but yeah, I, I also hope it wasn't a tragedy because uh, I've read these books many, many times and um, I would buy more work from them today. You know, it's funny that like Lana Lang, like when she shows up, she's like wearing like the super clean, hottest designer clothing you can imagine in this war torn, you know, city. You know, it's funny. It's oh, an yeah. interesting juxtaposition. I really think that that's another testament to how good the artist here is because it doesn't seem out of place at all somehow, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but it possibly yeah. could have. It could have not been pulled off as well as it was, but you just sort of accept it. Here's the hot counselor. Yeah. Perks of being the counselor. I did want to mention uh, Lana because I love her use here. You know, she's one of those characters that was created for a specific purpose, which was, hey, we want to do a Superboy story. It's a prequel, so he can't have met Lois. What do you got? Well, we're going to create Lana Lang. But she comes back in the present, and, you know, she doesn't have a lot to do unless she's fighting for Superman's affections, which are fine. But here, I, I love the idea that she gets to be the representative of the, the remaining humanity that, that she's been able to, to parlay the fact that she's very comfortable around superhumans into some level of political power, I guess. And, and she obviously uses it to, to, to help the friends, but at the same time, she's still competing with Lois because the entire yeah. point yeah. of this issue is that Superman only has his great moment and only agrees to come back and only goes away in the first place be because of Lois, you know, Lois uh, is tragically killed and uh, the 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 mere whisper that she might be alive uh, allows the, the 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 man of tomorrow to to come out of hiding, as it were. Uh, and I'm I'm simplifying the story somewhat, but those those are the big beats. And uh, I think Lana's the perfect foil for that because there's a real vested interest in Superman and the Superboy and everything else. The other thing I want to talk about is the cover. The cover to Adventures of Superman number six is uh, Mike Mignola, oh, who yeah. we mentioned before yeah. as being the artist on arguably the first 
modern Elseworld, Gotham by Gaslight. He was also the cover artist on an issue we reviewed in our um, Law, the Charlton Heroes episode. And this was made the same year. So, you know, he was definitely doing some great DC work back then. I love this cover because not only does it lay out the characters in their new post-apocalyptic design, but in typical Mignola fashion, first of all, you don't see a foot which I love. Uh, I, I feel like that's a trope. I think it was Rob Life. Mignola, you can't draw <laughs> There you go. There you go. Um, it's it's funny it's, how it's... he never gets criticized for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't care either fucking way whether Liefeld or Mignola does, but yeah, it's funny how certain things are only for certain people. <laughs> I can't draw a foot, uh, but I know I like Mike Mignola, and I know that when I see his name on a book, I buy it. Uh but yeah. th- this cover, I, th- I think, is great. I, I really do. The the way the, the Batman is drawn, the way uh, Metallix is shaded in the background so you don't necessarily give anything away. The characters look morose, but still, you know, ready for action. It's just, it's one of these things that you'd see on the later Hellboy comics with kind of the crowd shots of, you know, Hellboy being surrounded by both his allies and just these terrible things. And, and, and the character always being like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm tired. I don't necessarily want to, but I'm going to. And I I love that here because, you know, so many comics have Superman especially just ready for action and and going and fresh faced. And here it's like, no, this guy's been through something and I want to know what it is and I want to know why he's still here. And again, all all the design work, I I love their post-apocalyptic costumes. I love that they all have leather jackets. The Flash has robot legs. Batman's got this little... I don't know if it's a cybernetic or just a, a, a technological thing on his mask. Like it's just, it's so nineties. The whole thing looks like it was designed by James Cameron and I love it. I have such <laughs> nostalgia for that aesthetic. The Batman. We have not mentioned the Batman enough for this first issue. So not only does he pull a Rorschach and is like, I'm not retiring. I'm going to continue to fight you. And I dare you to catch me. Uh, and for 10 years, no alien is not only not only not able to catch him, but even though they know it's him, they don't kill any humans uh, in reprisal because they can't prove it. And, and again, right. it's this whole thing of like, you have to be afraid of us. And if we can't prove it's the Batman and we're just going to kill you for no reason, then, you know, you're we're, we're going to be the bad guys and you're not necessarily going to turn a supervillain in. That's the most Batman thing I've ever read in a comic. Um, How can they not find him? Like he's driving this goddamn Batmobile that's like the size of the state of Oklahoma. It's it's one of those. How can you not find him? The other thing I I love, and again, we were talking about the no feet. Batman's costume is mostly pouches by volume. It's not just his utility belt, his famous utility belt. He's got them wrapped around his arm. He's got them wrapped around like bandoliers. They're just, they're everywhere. And I guess, you know, in the post-apocalypse where presumably you don't have Alfred, the rest of the Bat family or whatnot, you need more stuff. But I just just loved it because it's just... You wouldn't design something that way now, but in 1994, it's like, well, what does Batman need after 10 years of being on his own? He needs more pouches. He absolutely oh, yeah. does. Uh, he, and I am not making that now. Yeah, exactly. I, I am not making fun of that. I love it. I just, I wanted to point it out because again, it's it's 19. It couldn't be more 1994 uh, if it tried. So thank you again for that, Mr. Artist. Great. All right, let's get into second issue here. Boy, oh boy, credits for this one from Mike's Amazing World of Comics. So again, Carl Kiesel still doing the writing. This is Superboy Annual Number 1, by the way. On sale date, July 5th, 1994. Penciled by Greg 
Lusniak, and the anchors are multiple names here. We got Jackson Geis, we got Peter Gross, Luke McDonald, Stan Walsh, Andy Parks, Dave Bender, Ray McCarthy, Dan Davis, and Andrew Papoy, all getting credits for inks on this issue, lettered by Christopher Eliopoulos and colored by Tom McCrawl. All right, in our second part of the story, the team is honing their skills and preparing for their upcoming battle with the Horde. Lana tells Superman she can get him Lois, but he has to bring the team to meet her tomorrow night at the remains of the Daily Planet. The team arrives and is immediately surrounded by the Horde. It turns out Lana has double-crossed them, which leads to Wonder Woman getting killed while saving Jimmy Olsen. The leader of the Horde, Krillin, has arrived and seeing the current battle looks to kill all of the citizens of Metropolis. I think he says like every woman, man, woman, and child are dying. Just be ready. Drops this large shield over the uh, over the city. And the hero's like, okay, we got to get out of here. And they head to underground. They regroup underground. Thinking quickly, Batman devises a plan to get him and Superboy onto the mothership. Albeit Superboy did not know that this was going to be happening, but he got there anyway. Surrounded by the Horde, Batman detonates a large bomb, sacrificing himself and also bringing the ship crashing into the city. The Resistance fighters rally to attack the Horde at this point. Wally West sacrifices himself to save Green Lantern, while Metal X is overcome by the Horde. During all of this, Superman and Superboy head to find Lois. The pair, however, find Krillin and Lana instead learning that Lois did indeed die 10 years ago, and this was a trick by Lana as she felt scorned by Clark. Krillin uses the kryptonite from Metal X's body to subdue Superman and has the upper hand in a battle with Superboy when Metal X still with enough power to rise and he impales Krillin from behind, killing him. Finding Superman has died, Superboy puts on Superman's outfit and carries Krillin's body outside, showing the Horde he is dead. This further inspires the resistance turning the tide of battle. One month later, things appear to have gone a lot better for humanity. Green Lantern summons Superboy and Metal X to tell him he plans on looking for, for, for more metas out there, while the other two continue to find the rest of the remaining horde and eliminate them. That's how we end our story. Now, I did not put every fantastic beat into that story, just the big ones, because there is a lot of stuff that's happening in the second part. But I can't do that justice in a synopsis because everything that happened in this issue is just, again, it, we didn't drop at all. This story did not go down. It just went up from issue one or part one to part two. Man, it's fantastic. Now that I know that it's based on a movie, there's just, you know, in my life, there's nothing spectacular here. There's no, it's not really much innovation. There's not really any new ideas, but everything that's done is just done perfectly. Done and so the well. second issue hits all the beats. You're, you're pretty much, pretty much from the start of it. You kind of know how most things are going to go. I got to say, I, I, I really like Lana Lang and like, personally, I'm like, you should pick her and not Lois. I like her better. I just, yeah, it's a hot take. It's just how I feel about it. I don't know why. I like the underdog. I love her, but like, listen, if you want to bone Superman, like tell him, what are you waiting for? <laughs> Dude. Like, honestly, like be like, Hey, listen, I'm sorry. I lied. Lois, she's dead, you know, but we had to get you going or like we were going to die. And also like, I love you. I want to, I want to, you know, be Mrs. Superman. Like we can do this together. Blah, blah, blah. Listen, I don't know what would have happened. Although honestly, I think he probably would have gone for you on it. You know what I mean? I, I, but I don't know. I can't say for sure. I didn't say, you know, but like I can see there are lots of, there are lots of else worlds, imaginary stories where he winds up with Lana, a few not dissimilarly, you know, like where Lana pulled some, you know, duplicity, you know, not became a, you know, 
a counselor and a quizzling for an alien horde, but right. certainly some publicity to get him. So, like, I think it's the only thing that really doesn't work. It's hard for me to see Lana Lang doing that. But I obviously have. it's Dale's world, so things happen. But, like, if you go to another imaginary story, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, she becomes, you know, uh, she gets superpowers for a little bit because she's going to help Superman. And she overhears Superman say that, like, she's great, but he's always going to love Lois. And, like, she is devastated, but she's like, I'm still going to go help him. Yeah, I'm going to show him who really loved him. I just don't see, like, what she knows about Superman and what she knows about herself. There's no way this ends well for her. Like, oh, hey, listen, I sacrificed the rest of your fucking post-apocalyptic Justice League, but you and me, let's hook up. I just don't think that, like, like that just doesn't seem like something she would think of. It's an Elseworlds, though, so that's a very minor, minor quibble there. What you said is uh, what is written in my note here, practically. I, I put someone needs to explain Lana Lang's turn. And, like it's been a ruse since the beginning to flush them all out. It seems like that's what it was, the intention. But because Clark wasn't interested in her, like she could have flip flopped at any point. Like if he would have just been like, hey, you know, I'm kind of, uh, you know, I'm interested. She would have been like, OK, I'm, I'm going to help you guys beat the horde. But he's trying to rescue Lois Lane because he wants to try and rescue somebody that he loved, that he th thought was dead from the clutches of the horde. And she's upset because Clark wasn't like, screw Lois, give me some sugar. The, the way I looked at it, you're right. This isn't spelled out in the text, but the way I looked at it is Lana is doing pretty well for herself. And I don't know how you go from where she was in the story before the Horde invades to being, you know, the designated human representative to said Horde. Like, there is a lot that must have happened in that decade. And I imagine most of it was terrible. The fact that Lana gets to the point where Superman finally comes back and it's because of a lock of hair that she's cloned or whatever. Like, this really almost thin plot and the fact that that breaks her and says oh man you you were never gonna love me you were never gonna save me from this all this stuff that i sacrificed this the miserable awful things i must have agreed to to placate our overlords maybe wasn't worth it and to for her to break like that i just thought you know we don't know what she's really been through and i, I kind of wrote off a lot of it to that but but you're right no one ever really comes in and says something along the lines of oh man you know we we broke you five years ago and ever since then you've just been our our, our you know you've been playing along uh, up until up until the moment it happens the reader really is supposed to believe that she's supporting the resistance movement so you know maybe it's not 100 percent uh fleshed out but i i do buy it because again I, it's a long-standing thing the the lana lois uh, Superman love triangle, but I also think if there had been a, a few more pages just spent on going over what she had to endure to survive and flourish during those 10 years, I'm sure it was awful. I'm sure it was as bad, if not worse, than anything one of the main characters had to go through. I'll give you that. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point. That's a very that good point. That makes a certain degree of sense, you know, I mean, and obviously people do illogical things under duress, but it's still just like, I just, how do you think this is going to work out well for you? You know what I mean? Like this, they're, they're like, what's your, you know, it's, it's come one of my favorite things to ask people. I'm like, okay, in a perfect world, what result do you want from this play? Like, what do you think you're going to get? And I, it, it, it seems off, but you know, her, it's fine. Again, it's her not, answer. Her answer would be Superman smooches. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Superman just gives me a big wet one and then punches the aliens to 
and the Andromeda Galaxy. There we you haven't go. spent enough time talking about Wonder Woman, really, and she is like magnificent. She comes in with like all these weapons, you know, like she's got a big lance and her lasso and a shield. I mean, it's really cool when she shows up. And it's Pants. sad that she dies, but like I really Pants. one of the things that I really like about when she dies is like, you know, she says she showed up because a Greek oracle told her to, or told her what was gonna happen. And like, but it was still her choice. Like, so she knew that she was going to die to save humanity. And, and, like, she's telling, like, oh, you shouldn't have, you know, you shouldn't have come. She's like, no, I knew this was going to happen. That's fine. It's the only way you'd find Superboy and Green Lantern. Like, if I wasn't, and if you don't have them, it all doesn't work out. It really shows the testament to how much a character that should absolutely detest the world outside of Paradise Island, how much she still loves it and what she's willing to do, not just for the world, but for, like, her friends. You can tell it's really funny how, like, you know, in some uh, universes, Wonder Woman and Superman are, you know, a romantic item like in Kingdom Come. And, you, you know, there's no problem with that. Here, they're obviously just great friends, and there's also no problem with that. They're, they're one of the few, like... I mean, couple isn't the right word for, it. I guess, pairings that really could work either way. Like, there's, you know, you can ship them if you want. If you don't, that's fine. But, like, either way, the love and respect that they have for each other always comes through. And it really, really, really shines through here. I alluded to earlier the moment where Wally West saves Green Lantern, who is talking mad trash as he destroys these guys, telling them, you know, the only way you, it's like, you better run. The only way you can get to me is if you're yellow. One of them finds a yellow, so it's the only yellow thing in, like, the <laughs> entire comic book besides the Kid Flash costume. And Kid Flash saves him. And, 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 and you know, it's, it's like, I tear up thinking about it. He's like, you know, he ran one last time. That was it. That's what he had in him. Oh, man, and that's what it took to save the day. And, uh, and Green Lantern, without him, they don't win the day. Like, he is the last hero that is actually standing on the front lines. What works so well in this comic at, at, at a few different spots is the buildup to whether this person is going to be able to overcome the thing that has kept them down for so long. And you right. don't know if it's going to happen. That's what makes it good. Because right. as you're looking through the panels, the whole setup is like Wally West is, you know, he's been so traumatized. He's scared to death, uh, you know, of going back out into battle and failing somebody because he can't run the fa as fast as he can. You see the spear. I'm looking at the panels right now. His face is just horrified as he sees the spear coming well, yeah, right to the back. Yeah, you see it in slow motion. You know, everything right. happens so much. You know, he can't run, but he hasn't lost his super speed, which would include his super awareness. You don't know if, if Wally's going to be able to pull this off because he has to get past himself in order right. to do this. And it is just tremendous when it happens. It's fantastic to watch him make this move uh and and finally he runs there's other moments throughout the book where you're like okay is this person going to be able to do right. this are we hanging on we're hanging on by a thread and then that next panel it comes up and it shows us it, they finally overcame it and that's what makes you go yes great but script too because you know you have green lantern who's like yeah wally you're still the fastest man alive he's like not for much longer you know uh, and like he knew he was oh. gonna die I really like the Green Lantern, and I don't know how it worked in the Seven Samurai. I assume if it's, you know, a pastiche, it's similar. This guy had to get his redemption. Well, it only works if he lives through this battle. You know, like he had, like when you get to the end and he's the, you know, really the only hero who was on the front lines the whole time. You know, Superman and Superboy like go off on their own things. You know, uh, he he's to the end of the day by being there on the front lines with those guys, he realizes that in some ways every life he's, Every life he saves is worth like two or three of the people they lost in Coast City. 
that, that that like he is he has utterly redeemed himself. And of course, the end where where they kind of do the they they play on the Lex Luthor Superman thing. You know, Metallex is like, hey, you know, I'm you know I'm going to be in charge of Metropolis, and you know, the new Superman is like, well, you know, we'll see. You you know, what I mean, and then Green Lantern is like, don't worry, Lex, you're going to get what's coming to you. You know, what I mean, like they all kind of know at some point that the Metropolis Free Zone won't be big enough for the two of these folks. But for now, there's nothing to be in charge of. For now. There's nothing, there's only rebuilding to do. So you have That's to rebuild, yeah. and then later on, we'll see who winds up the sheriff of Metropolis in the future. But everything in this uh, in the second part from start to finish is, you know, with the exception of, you know, Lana Lang, who, like I said, that's probably personal for me. I just, I can't be objective about her. It's pretty much perfect. It hits every beat, every page is, uh, every page makes you just want to turn and go to the next one. Like, it's hard to recommend, it's hard to recommend a comic so highly that, again, doesn't particularly shift any paradigms or do anything new. It's just, it's just straightforward. It's it's a lot like Mariano Rivera. Like all he threw is the cutter. Everybody knew he was going to throw the cutter. That's all he did. That's all he did. He did that to the Hall of Fame. He didn't have to throw anything else. He right. didn't have to do anything else. The greatest closer in baseball history. He didn't invent anything. He didn't do anything, you know, that nobody wasn't expecting. This Almost everything that you get about two-thirds of the way through this, you know exactly what's going to happen. And then when it happens, you're just excited to see it. And in many ways, I think that might be the best uh, compliment you can give a story like this. I agree. You know, especially yeah, in an Elseworlds setting. Like, think about it like where it's like fucking Batman, but he's Frankenstein. It's only right. going to go one way. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's, you know, so like here, you know, this is only going to go one way. And it's just great to see it when it gets there. Yeah. Uh, I'll go ahead and throw my notes out here. Uh, so I really only have a couple other ones. Some things that happened in the second issue. Uh, Superboy really has something for Wonder Woman. All <laughs> throughout the whole issues, both issues, keeps calling her wonderful. And then they're they're training. And like he really he lays one on her. He gives her a big old kiss. And boy, does she smack the shit out of him. Deservedly so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Bit too, bit too brash, but brutal enough too. Where the other, I think the other, uh, I don't know if it happens here in the previous issue. I think it's in this issue where he like takes apart that one horde, and inside is like this grub looking oh, guy. Oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> he just like he's looking at him. He's like somebody. Some people may not uh, think about killing you twice or whatever he says. But anyway, regardless, he squishes that thing, uh, which is great. Yeah, you know, um, it's funny because, like, obviously, for anybody, Wonder Woman would have to be the most attractive lady you've probably ever seen in your life. Now, think about this guy who lives in, like, you know, what appears to be, you know, Mad Max Fury Road, but with <laughs> aliens. She's literally a goddess. So, of course, how could he not be smitten? How, and how can you not think he has a chance? He's had superpowers in this world. He's been doing his thing for a bit. The uh, part where Batman takes Superboy up onto the ship now, is he got? Does he have the Azrael gauntlets on? Are you seeing? Are yeah, you that's seeing what that? I thought. I yeah, thought yeah. So. I, I did believe those were the Azrael gauntlets. Okay, which was pretty cool. That was a nice little nod. I got a couple questions here. I'll ask you guys. The art style of the two books clearly different. We got two different artists. Personally, uh, you know, we're not saying which one's better, but I want to ask you guys which one do you prefer? Uh, I will say that I prefer our second part here. I, I liked. Greg Luzniak's take on these characters. It definitely felt more nineties to me. It's probably because I, this art style evokes a lot of action 
There might even be in a little bit of excessive si- saliva syndrome going in, in, in through some of this. Um, <laughs> it's like this art gives you rabies. <laughs> some of the characters are uh, drawn like that. But if you pay attention to the facial expressions for most of these characters throughout this book, uh, the, I think the way that this this artist does faces, it's it's great. Anyway, I'm leaning for Superboy annual number one. Uh, Greg Luzniak's take on this story. Uh, for which one I prefer, Derry? What do you have? A, do you have a preference? Yeah, I, I gotta go with Brock. I, I really okay. do. I uh, that that first issue to me, like I said, I I, I don't consider myself uh, uh, all that knowledgeable on art, but I really enjoyed that one. I, I did not think the second one was bad uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And, and to your point, it does feel more '90s. It, it feels more like what I would expect uh, from comics of the time, and, and that's not a knock. That's uh, that stuff made me fall in love with this medium in the first place. Um, but yeah, I, I got to go with the first one. I've definitely read it a few more times uh, between the interior art, the Mignola cover, and everything else. I've definitely read that one a few more times. But yeah, I don't I don't have anything bad to say about the Luzniak art. I just prefer the first one. Okay, what about you, Dean? Um. You know, for me, I'm going to say I prefer the first one, but I find, like, the interiors to be fairly equal. But, like, the cover of the first one is the reason I bought it. I didn't steal it. I bought it. You um, bought uh, this one, folks. I know. I bought them both. Wow. No. Wow. No. I didn't back. <laughs> I wasn't a vagrant this time. Just vagabonding my way through the comic book store through Walmart. Um, But I bought the first one because I thought the cover was so cool. I had to make a choice about which of these uh, Elseworld World annuals I was going to get. And that was the choice that I made. And it was, uh, it was the right choice because I think another one was the one where, like, Superman is Tarzan. That one's not great. It's not mm. terrible. But, like, this was certainly the one to get, you know, if I had narrowed it down to those two. Okay. What's your favorite moments? I don't want to take somebody, so, but I'm going to do it. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite moment of this second book absolutely has to be Wally West flash saving Green Lantern. Am am I taking yours, Dean, or do you have a different one? Um, no, I mean, it's, you know, you, you know, I I was eating a bag of Tostitos earlier and they were all fucking delicious. It's like, you're trying (laughs) to ask me which of those Tostitos was my favorite. I Uh ate a third of this goddamn bag. Like, you know, calorie city one of my uh, one of my favorite facebook statuses that you put was i've ate too many fritos y'all <laughs> <laughs> i have not, that was all I, said that was like that is just the greatest status i've ever read i'm oh, truly the american poet of our time <laughs> <laughs> and otherwise just needs to listen to this or read my facebook there's a lot of great stuff you know what i mean like hey here's here's an article about how we're all gonna die in 22 years from global warming also how about this picture of peacemaker you know <laughs> but um i think um well it's really hard to pick a favorite moment but you know what i'm gonna go with uh the one that I really think, and this sounds very like lordy and like patronizing, but the one you should pick is the last page. The one you okay. should pick is where, hey, things are going back the other way. Here's Superman. We're back. We're back. It's you know they won the day, and there's going to be a new Superman and a new legacy and a new era. And I think that like all of the uh, all of the tragic moments are great and they're very cathartic. 
I think it's important for me personally to remember that, like, in this case, the journey is something to be remembered, but not necessarily celebrated. Let's, you know, to me, I personally want to celebrate the end, the overcoming. And that may be because of my personal turmoils that I've discussed here, what have you. But for me, that's the moment. And I close the book. And, you know, like I said, if I haven't read it in a month, that's the last time I'll tear up. Uh, my favorite moment in the issue is uh, a little bit before the end. It's the scene where it says, uh, your leader is dead, which is... Uh, yeah, that's a great it, one. Kind of the same sentiment as my favorite. The reason I like this scene so much is when you look on the page, you see a man in a Superman costume, and you're meant to believe it's Superman. It's not. It's Superboy. Uh, and he's realized, they've all realized in the final moment, that it's not enough to just defeat the leader and overthrow these people. They have to reinstill faith in the populace, or else yes. this cycle's going to continue. And you're not going to get a return to what you have at the end. You're not going to get Superman in a costume being just something that happens that we're all used to. You you have to get back to that. And I love this moment because not only does it give, uh, I'm just going to call him Connor Kent. I know that's not his name here, uh, but give him that moment that he, he doesn't necessarily have, uh, especially now in modern continuity, you know, the character of John Kent is, is pretty much the new Superman. He understands the weight of wearing that costume, and it's why he put that symbol on in the first place. He didn't do it arbitrarily. He did it because he wanted to evoke something very specific in the people around him, the people he was trying to save, and here he accomplishes that. And I think that's beautiful. I always like to say that some of my favorite Superman stories are the ones where he's fictional. And what I mean by that is you can often tell a really good Superman story uh, using people who were inspired by him. Uh, famously in the anime Dragon Ball, when the character goes from Dragon Ball to Dragon Ball Z, he becomes an alien uh, and he fights uh, Vegeta, who is very similar to General Zod. That was all inspired by uh, the writer-artist, you know, seeing all the Superman movies and loving those. The movie The Iron Giant uh, uses a yep. fictional version of Superman. Arguably, Captain Marvel himself was inspired by Billy reading a Superman comic, um, though I don't know if that's actually canon or something I made up. Um, but here, it's, it's perfect because you see Superboy take the cost go outside and say, I've, I've defeated the leader. Now you don't have to be afraid anymore. So when you see this Superman symbol, which I've dedicated my life to, you can feel better about things because, you know, we're all going to be in this together and I'm going to help you to the best of my ability, uh, which are which are great. Uh, so that that is my favorite moment in this comic because it's, it's not just a triumph, a physical triumph. It's an emotional, it's a psychological one as well. And you can see it. I mean, it's the only time Green Lantern smiles in two issues. Even the other humans, they look up. The aliens are horrified because they, they know they've lost. They, they know, yeah. right. you know, I'm sure even when they were flying here, they were being told, listen, this world doesn't, we're, we might lose this one. And then they win. And they're all like, oh, this is great. These guys weren't so bad. And then a decade later, Superman does what Superman does, which is he wins and, and he frees everyone, even if it's someone else acting as Superman. I found that moment to be incredibly powerful and I love it. As far as final thoughts, there's there's so much in this comic. I mentioned Dragon Ball and the villain is called Krillin. Uh, yeah. Who, is is the main character of Dragon Ball Goku's friend in the comics. Uh, I love that. I don't know if that was intentional. 94 is kind of early for Dragon Ball to be famous in this country, but this guy clearly saw the same I don't know. We had that shit-ass Nintendo game. I Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I, I, I'm not going to speak for Carl Kiesel, uh, but I, I really appreciated that, whether or not it was a reference. Uh, Krillin famously being a, a good guy, but he did start out as an antagonist, so who knows what. You know, going back to this being based off the movie, uh, you know, the movie is not 
a a a a great feel good story uh, of the seven samurai. Four of them are killed, um, and it's mostly like petty things. Like it, I imagine it would be in a real war. You know, not everyone gets to die uh, killing the the head of the the enemy army, but most Sadly. of the yeah, well. Right. It's like the, the Saving Private Ryan moment. Those guys exactly. get off yeah. the fucking. They get off the fucking march. And they just shot in the head. That's it. That's it. Yeah. The movie. The whole point of the movie is, thematically speaking, it's like, well, why are the bandits, which are what the horde is called in the movie, why are they attacking? Well, because they're they're desperate. They, they they need to eat, and these villagers have crops. They don't have anything else. They they can't you know they can't hire anyone other than than seven people who are down on their luck and who will eat for just a good night meal and a place to sleep. Uh, but also everyone's desperate. You know, samurai are supposed to be high ranking political people. And at this point in time, they're not, you know, the wealth is being concentrated in a few people. No one's being helped. And the people at the lowest are, you know, on their own. So they have to resort to this. So it's this whole thing about how everyone driven to desperation turns on each other. You know, it's not a, a feel good story. And for the most part, you get that here, but because it's a superhero comic in the end, instead of it just being, well, you know, we tried our best and our friends died and the villagers get to go on and maybe, maybe one day we'll die in a glorious battle, but most likely not here. It's the reverse here. It's like Superman's back. Green Lantern is back. Even Luthor is back. You know, we're going to be, we're going to fall back into the same shenanigans, but you know, we made it, we made it through, we made it through that, that awful nonsense of, uh, of 10 years. So again, I, I, I really like that the story, as much as it is adapted for these comics, it's still a superhero story. And I, I really appreciate it about that. Um, you, you guys mentioned Wonder Woman early and yeah, I, I want to echo that. I agree with all of that. The, this is a great Wonder Woman story. I, I mean, the, the whole revelation that she knew she was going to die in battle, uh, but doesn't hesitate. I, I mean, if you imagine, you got to be her on Themyscira, and this oracle is telling you, yeah, you're going to die in glorious battle, and, and we're going to win, but also this weird teenage kid in a headband is going to try to make out with you a lot? I don't know how you feel about that. So, you know, she she makes the most sacrifice of, of dealing with everything, but... um. Well, she can handle it, because she's like, but I die really quick after that starts, right? But yeah, yeah, it's not a long time. Okay, cool. Fine. Well, as long as I get to the dying part fast. <laughs> Wonder Woman uh, also shows up to play. Like I, I always tell people that my favorite Wonder Woman stories are are kind of where she's in charge. I mean, listen, she was raised by the gods. Uh, you know, the 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 earliest gods of Western civilization. She knows all the great heroes. She knows all the legends. Like, there's no reason she's not the greatest warrior to ever exist. So when she shows up here, and she's like, "Oh man." alien bandits and I got to help put the team back together and throw them away. Yeah. That's why I became wonder woman in the first place. So I, I just thought she was used incredibly well. And, and you guys mentioned her weapons. I love that she has kind of a, a holy cosmic armory because it's one of those things that separates her from Superman and Martian Manhunter and even Superboy. It's like, she's not just strong. She's, she's good with a variety of weapons. Like anything that you think to throw at her, she's going to have a response to. And I, I just, that's one of the other things that connects her to Aquaman because Aquaman yeah. is good yeah. with like underwater weapons and stuff between that and like their Royal connection, like their characters are very similar. I've always felt like really understood each other in a way that characters kind of the way black Panther Panther and Namor understand, and even do they all understand each other because the you know heavy is the head that wears the crown or what have you. But I want to tell you this real quick. Y'all want to hear the dumbest thing I ever about Wonder Woman that I've ever heard? Oh boy, please. <laughs> yeah, sure. so it was right when the uh, 
they were showing what Wonder Woman was going to look like in a BBS. And this guy showed her with like the sword and the shield. And this guy's like, Wonder Woman doesn't use a sword. This is like a Facebook conversation. Oh, this guy, and everybody's like, she's using a sword a lot. And they start showing you all these pictures of Wonder Woman using a sword. He's like, yeah, but back in the 90s when William, when, you know, Bill Lopes was doing it and that kind of thing and Brian Ball and cover, she didn't use a sword. Then all of a sudden, a cavalcade of pictures <laughs> of this era of her using <laughs> the sword. Then he's like, sure, 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 sure. But the George Perez stuff, she didn't use a sword during that kind of stuff. That's not part of the character. All of a sudden, cavalcade. <laughs> Of like this fucking Wonder Woman using a sword. He's like, okay, whatever. But like, listen, when the character was originally created the way intended, she's a person of peace, no sword. Fucking 55 pictures of Golden Age Wonder Woman with a sword. I'm pretty sure this guy's dead now. Died, like on the spot, right? <laughs> proven wrong so, enough. So, I, mean, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but while we were talking about Wonder Woman, Derry, I knew you'd <laughs> want to hear that story. That is the funniest Wonder Woman story I've ever heard. He just—I've never seen somebody get owned on the internet so hard. Oh, and like, man. this is one of you know how like sometimes when somebody's getting owned or something, somebody's like, "Well, they kind of meant this." Nobody, everybody's like, "Wow, you are terrible." <laughs> And like to imagine, to imagine like quadrupling down, like quintupling Uh-oh. down on this, like right, dude. Take, take like stop up, while you're ahead, man. Gosh, I, I gotta imagine this guy knew exactly what he was doing because oh, you're sitting hope. there and you're like, you know, I want to expose a lot of people who maybe haven't read a lot of Wonder Woman comics to this stuff. I want to make these people do my work for me. I'm just saying, I've done that before. I've picked the other side of an argument just to see how much the other the other side knew. Sound like sounds like this guy knew what he was doing. This, this guy saying. was one of those MRA guys. All right, all right, all right. Maybe not. I, I was yeah, trying to play I, devil's advocate. I think, I think, I think he he just he 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 also critiqued the outfit for looking too masculine, like that kind of thing, oh, you know. Yeah. Also, it was too masculine, but Gal Gadot also didn't have arms big enough to hold a sword. Oh yeah, right. Of course. So no, I, I know what you're talking about, and I, you know, that good natured trolling, and then you're like, haha, blah blah. This yeah. guy was not doing it, but he also was not doing anything other than shrinking into a corn cob. <laughs> oh, that's great. The, uh, right. the the only other thing I wanted to mention is I, I said before when asked that I, I preferred the uh, art in the first one over the second one. Again, not a not a knock to the art in the second one. Uh, and particularly, I wanted to point out that this has one of my favorite, I don't know if it's a trope, uh, but certainly something you saw more often back then. This has a double page vertical spread which I oh, love yeah. when Superboy is fighting Wonder Woman in this this kind of like training montage. At first, I wasn't sure what was going on, and then I, I, I had to uh, rejigger the screen a little bit. And uh, it's it's one of those where you have to you have to turn the comic so that it's a double page spread, but you're, it's basically one large uh, double sized panel. And I I appreciate the the heck out of those 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 took me back. Um, I I don't. I don't believe they're still in vogue, but I, I really appreciated seeing one here. Yeah, uh, I, I like that a lot. Let's bring them back. Hey, listen, man, I got a Wildcats comic coming out right now, so someone somewhere's got ninety nostalgia. In fact, I think DC is right now doing a '90s throwback celebration with uh, 
variant covers from the 90s. So oh, how about that? I should uh, I should see what they're doing and not buy any because variant covers are expensive. <laughs> I, don't really, I don't really buy very many of those. I saw a house ad for it and uh, I got very excited because at first I, I thought, wait a second, did I, did I pick the wrong uh, issue out of the pile? And it's like, nope, it's uh, 2022 and you were doing a, a lenticular hollow foil cover. I did wow. see that, yeah. Like of all the gimmicks to like bring back, that that's not a good one. <laughs> you know, like just slap a fucking hologram on there, or do like those chromium covers, like XO Man of War number zero. Like that shit was slick. But like that Robin, uh, what was it, the third Robin miniseries where you pulled like Cry the Cry of the Huntress and you pulled the lenticular up and down. It was just oh, a I, I don't know if it's actually lenticular, but I think oh, if, okay. we look, if we look back at previous, uh, you know, nostalgia waves, I don't think it's the uh, it's 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 the best stuff that gets brought back later on. Oh, holy shit! Yeah, yeah there it is. right here. No, I, I hasn't moved since oh, last my I brought goodness. it out. Last Did wow. you guys plan that? That's insane. <laughs> no, no. There's. I mean. Uh, you guys, no. you've, you've mentioned this series before. I've had it sitting right here, and I grabbed it last time. But yeah, you, you, bring, it, you bring it up. You bring it yeah. up. There it is. I haven't, I haven't read it yet. Chuck Dixon, right? Yeah, yep. yeah. Chuck I mean, he, he, you know, he, he, he's really good at writing Batman characters in The Punisher. So, oh, go ahead, Derry. Did you have something else? Uh, no, no. I, I think I babbled on uh, quite enough. But uh, you know, on the off chance that Carl Kiesel actually listens to this, I just want to say thank you because uh, I love these comics and I love that movie and. Uh, these are a delight, and uh, if there's ever a one-shot that comes out that has them both, maybe a little update on the coloring, I'm going to be buying a lot and handing them out to people, because everyone should read this. Well said. Greg Lusniak, by the way, speaking of excessive saliva syndrome, back in December of 95, the man penciled Rune versus Venom. Anything that? How about that? How that about was a 395 it? comic book. Can you imagine highway fucking robbery? 395 for that. Ooh. That would be this is like what like eight dollars now? <laughs> Probably. Can you imagine paying eight dollars for Rune versus Venom with what was in it? Man, they they got Ooh. us. They got us. I'm sure it's fine. So, Dean, you 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 said it yourself. This was a good comic. I mean, uh, any any last thoughts here before we move into plugs? It's important to note that like that Lana does come all the way around. Like she, it's apparently her idea to like make it Superboy into Superman. And I also want to just uh, touch back on you know the image when Superboy, who is now Superman, brings Krillian's uh, body up. And I think the Superman logo, Superman, Superman character rather, is like one of the few characters who's like almost the icon means more than the character. There may be a few others, like you could kind of say that maybe for like Captain America, um, possibly the Punisher. You know, there are a few other guys like that, but none none nearly as big as Superman, where like you see that that image can inspire. And it's just, if somebody else had done the same thing, you know, I mean, in my perfect world, Captain Marvel could have, but it probably wouldn't have worked. But like say Martian Manhunter or Captain Comet, who are very similar to Superman in power, if they had done it, it won't work without that shield. Like that's what really got everybody into it because that icon has so much power. And I really think that one of the neatest subtexts of this comic is showing you again and again how those icons have that power 
and how that can transfer to, you know, inspiring other people and eventually inspiring a great number of people. It's really just, uh, in most ways, it's just a perfect comic book. There's not much else to say about it. You probably find it in a dollar or $2 oh, bins yeah. now. It's worth, uh, yeah. it, it's worth twice that three times. It's worth, you know, compared dollars for each of these. Right. I $10 mean, American. <laughs> If you compare this to the quality of some of the other stuff that you're going to find in a dollar bin, seriously, land on this. Pick it up. Uh, You're right. I went to a flea market and found, I think, it was either the first part of this story or the second part of it. uh, Because I was trying to get as many Elseworlds from 94 that I could. And I knew there was a few out there that I'd missed. uh, And I'd found one of these issues. And I paid a buck for it. So it's absolutely worth a dollar. Uh, So, yeah, man, get your hands on it. Fantastic story. All right, we did it, folks. That uh, was the Super 7. And we are the terrible trio. No, I don't know what we'd call ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Aren't those the animal mask? Batman villains is they that the, the terrible trio, Batman really? Yes, oh yeah. well, yeah, I'm 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 okay with that. I I don't. D- Dean can assign us, uh, you know, funny animal names. I'm okay with. I'm that. gonna have to go and look these things up, and see what that is all well, about. You're definitely the wombat. <laughs> I am fine with that. I have been called worse. Ah, <laughs> uh, let's get into plugs. Dean Compton. Unspoken Decade. On the UnspokenDecade.com where you're going to find a lot of great articles and uh, some old school podcasts that we did over there too. We're very active on the Facebook page. We're getting more active on Instagram and Twitter still around, so I still do stuff there. I th- I'm like two-thirds of the way done, maybe three-fourths of the way done with the uh, 91 Marvel cards, and then I'll move into the 92. So watch out, because, like, listen, if you're a lazy old fuck like me, that's probably going to be very exciting. Get ready for Ghost Rider pictures. Turn them notifications on, folks. Right, right, right. Dude, hey, hey, smash that bell, hit that like. (laughs) Doing it right now. We'd love to have you come on by. Love it, love it. Hey, this was mentioned earlier. We did a, uh, we did a, conversation we had a conversation about living assault weapons and justice league quarterly number 14 where we took a look at a 90s take on well i'll say 90s take but it's kind of like you know a story 90s story that involved the charlton heroes and we had a lot of fun discussing that uh you know blue beetle judo master the question Tune in, folks. That's that's going to be airing on, or it has aired when this airs, uh, but that's going to be in the archives 12th of December, from what I can see, is when that's going to be airing. And then, of course, the Source Material Comics podcast, which is right here on the Source Material feed as well. On the 19th of December, Mark Radlich and I are going to do a comic called Slayer, the Heavy Metal Santa Claus. That's S-L-E-I-G-H-E-R. Yeah, baby. Watch out. Uh, that was a... That was a lot of fun. It basically devolved into a list. That's because we were like, okay, this is a comic. Here it is. Let's go to CBR and look at a list. That like the 10 times you got it. You make a list, you check it twice. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. All right. That's going to be it. Thanks uh, to the W2M network for hosting the podcast and folks. uh, We hope to talk to you soon. So for Derry, for Dean, I'm Jesse. We'll be talking to you at some point in the future. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. 
Unspoken Issues is part of the UnspokenDecade.com, the home for 90s comics, blogs, and podcasts. Unspoken Issues also has a Facebook group you can join if you are interested. Just search the Unspoken Issues podcast and request to join. All of this would not be possible without W2Mnet.com and the Rattelich and Broadcasting Network, so make sure to seek them out for more podcasts. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please feel free to share, and we look forward to entertaining you again soon. Uh, 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 uh.